1: Today, we present the fourth and final episode of our series, Closing the Gap, Food Insecurity in Illinois. This week, you heard from experts, policymakers, and residents who fight food insecurity and food justice in our neighborhoods. Yesterday, we spoke with anti-hunger advocate and researcher Andy Fisher. He wrote in his 2017 book, Big Hunger, that more food is not the answer to hunger, but rather the solution comes down to a single word. Justice. Justice. Charity solves hunger, you know, just like a Tylenol solves a headache. And we also met a Black farmer, Kamal Bell, who believes that agriculture can be an act of revolution against racial injustice.
2: If we're going to take control of our communities, we're going to take control of a lot of the things that affect us as a people, we have to get back to the food and we have to get back to the land. Today, we'll look
1: at policy and personal solutions to closing the hunger gap. So let's get started with Diane Schoenbach, Director of the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern University. Diane, welcome back to Reset. Hi, thanks for having me. So far in the series, Diane, we've heard from food banks and from folks facing food insecurity themselves. And we've talked about what it's been like during the pandemic specifically, because COVID-19 has exacerbated issues of food insecurity and and hunger, as I'm sure you're you're well aware. But uh, if you can just tell us, what kind of trends are you seeing during the pandemic?
0: During the pandemic, we've seen a large spike in food insecurity and also in hunger. Compared to prior to the pandemic, uh, the estimated rates are either two or three times as high. So we're really seeing numbers that we've just frankly never seen before. Over one out of five adults report being food insecure. And then that's varied a little bit over time during the pandemic, but it's back up to very, very high levels now.
1: You were on the show recently and you talked about how mothers are bearing the brunt of the economic fallout from the pandemic. Break that down for us again. You know, What's the outlook right now for women and children specifically?
0: So families with children are absolutely facing higher levels of both food insecurity, which is this broader measure of having to make budgetary sacrifices to uh, make sure you've got enough to eat, and also hunger which is you know, what everybody knows it is. Some reasons for that include women have been particularly hard hit during this recession. It's the first time a recession has had more female job loss than male job loss. At the beginning of the pandemic was because of the types of jobs that you know, weren't able to be done remotely. But then over time, because the kids haven't been in school, that's been compounded by moms having to quit their jobs if they were lucky enough to still have one right. in order to care for their kids. And then making it even worse is because the kids aren't in school, they've lost access to those meals that they normally get, you know, two meals a day from school. And so that further drives up costs for food for families just at the time when so many are stretched either because they've lost their jobs or they've lost, you know, hours at work and so their incomes have gone down, etc.
1: Are federal and local governments doing their part? Are they doing enough to meet the needs of food insecure residents and make them equitably?
0: You know, so most food assistance really does come from the federal government. So I can start with SNAP. Illinois has done a reasonably good job of addressing the increased SNAP caseload. You know They've been processing applications and seeing people move on to the system. So that's good news. In general, WIC has been less responsive. That's the special meals program for infants and young children and okay. and pregnant women. You know, we did a pretty good job at the beginning of the pandemic, getting the pandemic EBT money out for families who lost access to free meals. They have just, in the last couple of weeks at the federal level, figured out how to administer the program. And so my hope is that Illinois will be very first in line to make sure that that money comes to you know help relieve the suffering of Illinois families.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to talk about solutions because that's a huge part of our focus this week is how do we get over this? How do we solve this? What can be done, Diane, on a policy level to address food insecurity?
0: Really, it just takes money. And so we can find ways to get that money out. So of course, right now, what we need most of all is for the Senate to come to an agreement about what the next relief bill looks like. Important parts of that agreement have got to be Um, the maximum SNAP benefits. Also, extending unemployment insurance is going to be an important part of this because for so many people, they were pushed into food insecurity because they lost their jobs. Now, what's important to note is that relief for food is not one of the things that's holding up this bill. It's not particularly controversial. I think there's a lot of bipartisan agreement, but that money is being held hostage as senators and the White House debate how to structure the rest of the bill, how much comes for state and local government you know, whether there's a liability shield, etc.
1: Well, I've asked this to other guests this week. So I'll ask you, beyond lawmakers, what about individuals? What can we do?
0: So I serve on the board of the Greater Chicago Food Depository, which helps food banks and food pantries across Chicagoland. The need that we're seeing is from food banks and food pantries, is so very great. And we're really quite reliant on charitable giving from normal Chicagoans who want to help their neighbors in this way. And so that's my number one sort of request. You know, we can provide food or volunteer hours or money to food banks and then keep the pressure up on our elected officials to move things at the federal level.
1: That's Diane Schanzenbach. She's the director of the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern University. Diane, thanks again for breaking this down for us. Thank you. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we're talking today about closing the hunger gap. And maybe you just heard our previous guest, Diane Schanzenbach, tell us that she sits on the board of the Greater Chicago Food Depository. So let's find out what they're seeing on the front lines. With us now is Kate Mayer. She's CEO of the Greater Chicago Food Depository, the local food bank for Cook County, with a network of more than 700 partner agencies, including food pantries, soup kitchens and shelters. Kate, welcome back to Reset. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Tell us what you're seeing at the food depository and what you're hearing from your partner pantries across the county.
3: I'm running out of adjectives, honestly. It's just unprecedented need, and it's in every corner of our community. And it feels like wave after wave of people having to turn to food pantries and frankly, I think our partners are feeling um, tired, stretched, and worried and I would say in our forty one year history it 's never been like this, and we are bracing for things to get worse, and already are seeing signs of numbers increasing. Uh, lines are getting a little bit longer at food pantries than they were last month
1: so let 's rewind back to you know the beginning of this let 's say February, early March. That was about nine or ten months ago, believe it or not, because it feels like it's been a lifetime (laughs) since then, right? What was going through your mind then as we were in the early days?
3: I think what just stunned us was how quickly people fell into such deep need. It felt like it happened in seconds. By the end of March, we were seeing... Uh, long, long lines at food pantries All across the community Literally tens of thousands of new people People who had never had to turn to food pantries before Showing up to be able to support themselves And so I think it was a reminder Something that we knew But to see it so dramatically playing out There are so many people in this community And frankly across the country Who were one paycheck away from losing all of their ability to support their families, and they lost that paycheck. And then unfortunately, they lost many more paychecks. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of the worry that we feel in this moment is, while we are so excited and relieved about the progress about a vaccination, there are so many people who it will take them months, if not years, to recover economically from the crisis.
1: Well, you mentioned those long lineups. Can pantries meet the demand, Kate? What do food banks and pantries need right now, today?
3: Yeah, so I would actually answer that in a different way, which is food pantries and food banks all across this country. There's an amazing network, the Feeding America Network of Food Banks. They make miracles happen every day. But I would say beyond the charitable response, what we really need are leaders in Congress to lean into the federal nutrition programs that we have, which are proven to be successful. At the end of the day, I don't think charity can be the complete answer, Um, certainly not in Chicago. What we need are food stamps or the SNAP program, which can safely provide families with dollars that they can spend in grocery stores in their community that's what it's going to take to make sure that all of our neighbors have the food that they need to get by.
1: We talked to Craig Gunderson. He's Mm -hmm. a U of I professor who studies food insecurity. And he argued that boosting SNAP, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, food stamps, boosting it, making it easier to qualify, he says that's the answer. But what's your take? I couldn't agree more.
3: Unlike the coronavirus, which took an entire legion of really smart scientists to understand how do we develop a vaccination, this actually isn't a problem that we don't have the answer to. This is about political will. And I might add, you know, it is a proven successful program. There's study after study that shows if families, and in particular, if young children can have access to SNAP during their critical years of brain development, they are going to be healthier and more successful as they grow up, why wouldn't we invest in the children in this country? Why wouldn't we invest in making sure that families have something as basic as food? It's an easy solve. We just need Congress to lean in and make it happen. You know, I think one of the things about SNAP or food stamps right now that is so important is it's a very targeted response. And I think there's a conversation in this country right now about how do we best respond to poverty and we can have that conversation But I haven't met anyone who thinks that people should go hungry. That's not a debate that we're having in this country. And we have a tool that is actually perfect for the moment that we are in, a tool that not only will provide food to families in need, but will help grocery stores, food manufacturers, and farmers in this country by making sure that those dollars flow back to communities and provide for a healthy economy
1: for all of us. Mm -hmm. As we look to the very, very near future, you know, millions of Americans, I think it's about 12 million, are expected to lose jobless benefits after Christmas. How is the food depository preparing for that? Well, that's part of the
3: deep worry that we feel right now. We know that there are more people who are going to show up in already long lines. And when I talk about long lines, just for context, two weeks ago I was at one of our partner organizations a couple of miles away from our food bank. And the line of people on a cold November day was 10 blocks long. Wow. So imagine... Mm -hmm. the circumstances that you're willing to stand in line for two or three or four hours in the cold because your family needs food.
1: There's no option. There's no other option.
3: Yeah, that's right. More people will be getting into that line in January or February or March unless we take action because we are better than this. We are a country that can make sure that everybody has enough food, not just to get by, but to thrive.
1: At the Food Depository, you do a lot of work around combating food insecurity and hunger, as we just talked about, beyond just providing groceries to folks who need it. Because I want to really hone in on the other efforts that the Depository is involved in in combating food insecurity, because let's be honest, Kate. The real problem here is much deeper, and it's poverty.
3: Absolutely. And and I'm actually going to point to two things. It is certainly poverty, but I would also say, and we've seen this borne out again and again in the data, not only around food insecurity, but also around the coronavirus, it's systemic racism. I mean, I think one of the things that we have to talk honestly about is we have zip codes that we serve where the food insecurity rate and... The coronavirus infection rate and the mortality rate is so disproportionately high. And those are zip codes where people of color live so disproportionately high compared to zip codes that are predominantly white and there's a conversation that we need to have about why it is that black and brown families are disproportionately impacted by this so there's an element of racism that undergirds all of this in terms of poverty you're right we need to talk about what are the solutions that lift people out of poverty we believe at the food depository that jobs and committing to employment training, workforce development training, is a critical piece of it. We offer workforce development here, as well as support to other workforce development programs. People don't want to stand in the lines. People want to have solutions, but we have to help connect them to employment opportunities. So whether it's a job training program for how to work in a kitchen or how to be in hospitality or a job training program to learn how to drive a truck, those are critical endeavors that we need to invest in.
1: And I'm so glad that you mentioned the systemic racism What would you like to see, Kate, in this fight to address that disproportionate impact?
3: Part of it is we have to have an honest conversation and we have to take some of the vitriol out of it. It is so disheartening in this moment that I find we're even having to have a conversation about whether or not we should connect people to programs and whether or not we should connect people to proven solutions. And that is so distressing. I can't understand how our leaders in Congress Aren't immediately stepping up and saying, My God, we have Americans who are hungry and we have the solution at our fingertips, but yet we'll do nothing. I mean, that's just, it's heartbreaking day after day to see nothing happening. So we have to rise up and hold our leaders accountable. And we have to make sure that they take action that ultimately provides meaningful solutions that address the problems that face not just Chicago, but cities all across this country. While it is true that there are men, women, and children in every neighborhood of the city of Chicago who are struggling right now. The fact is that in households of color, that
1: struggle is deeper and there are more of them. Well, we're thankful for the work that you're doing. That's Kate Mayer. She's the head of the Greater Chicago Food Depository. Kate, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Today, we're wrapping up our week-long look at hunger in the Chicago area. And if you heard our last guest, Kate Mayer, CEO of the Greater Chicago Food Depository, she eloquently laid out that systemic racism is at the heart of food security. Right now, millions of people, especially in black and brown communities, live in food deserts, lacking the basic human right of reasonable access to healthy and affordable food. So how did we get here? Let's try to dissect that question with Angela Odoms-Young. She's an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Nutrition at the University of Illinois, Chicago's College of Applied Health Sciences. Angela, welcome to Reset. Thank you. Of course. I I mentioned food deserts a moment ago. Can you first define the term for us and then paint us a picture of what that looks like here in the Chicago region?
2: Definitely. Just to start out, you know, a lot of communities don't like the term food deserts. I mean, there are several terms, food deserts, food swamps. We use the term sort of low food resource communities, but traditionally that term food desert has been used to define the lack of a grocery store. I think we know a little bit more about kind of this holistic food environment within communities. So if you think about a food ecosystem within communities, we know that that's more than a grocery store. It might include farmers markets or urban agriculture sites that are run by community-based organizations. So when we have sort of that holistic, vibrant Food ecosystem, that's what we like to see in communities. Uh, We don't want to think about just the lack of a grocery store.
1: Yeah, and, and the focus too is on fresh, healthy, affordable food. Definitely. So, what does that look like here in the Chicago
2: region? Where are those pockets? So, when we think about those pockets, it's traditionally the South and West Side. I mean, it's not sort of a news story. The South and West Side have kind of low food resources, and of course, that's not just by chance, or it's not because the people in those communities don't want healthy food. There are systemic and structural causes that have been created over many, many years. We also see the same, honestly, in some of the West suburbs, and some of the South suburbs, uh, places like Lansing or uh, Chicago Heights, Ford Heights, where you've seen a lack of food retail, where food retail may have left those communities, and you don't see that food retail being replaced within those communities.
1: hmm Now, COVID and, and months of civil unrest placed a spotlight on food insecurity in this country overall, and communities of color specifically. How did we get here, Angela?
2: Well, it's not an uncommon story, but as I mentioned... It seems to be a running theme here. (laughs) Right, there's been years in the making. We're talking about food, but we can't leave out education, and we can't leave out businesses more globally, and we can't leave out some of those structural causes that happen early on as it relates to policy. So slavery, uh, Jim Crow land loss, uh, housing, the housing crisis. And mm-hmm. So I think what's really important to talk about is that you don't only see this with low-income Black and Latinx communities, you also see this dearth in food retail when it comes to middle-income Black and Latinx communities. Angela, in, in your work,
1: you've seen that even when food insecurity was on the decline, like before the pandemic, that gap, that racial and ethnic gap in food insecurity, it persisted.
2: Why? Definitely. It's continued. So again, there's a geographic component and there's an economic component. So with COVID, we're seeing an increase in unemployment. So you always have declines and changes when it comes to income in a more broader standpoint. Uh, So societal unemployment, But we also think about vulnerable families. So something might happen where you need to pay a bill or you have a medical expense. That won't push every family into food insecurity. But if you're economically vulnerable, that may push you into food insecurity. And because of race and racism, African-American families have less wealth. And also Latinx families and Native American indigenous families. So when you look at BIPOC communities, we see that disparity of wealth across multiple BIPOC communities. But there are other communities that also are at risk for food insecurity. So if we think about people with disabilities. They're more at risk for food insecurity. There's a lot of work emerging right now around LGBTQ communities and inequities in food insecurity.
1: We are talking about the root causes of food insecurity with Angela Odoms Young. She's associate professor of kinesiology and nutrition at the University of Illinois, Chicago. How have local organizations responded to these disparities that you talk about, Angela?
2: They have really leaned in, honestly. We have seen a response from organizations that are longstanding, like the Greater Chicago Food Depository and their network of agencies. So the Food Depository has over 600 agencies in local communities that are responding. Uh, The Food Depository is also looking specifically at communities of color where there may be a gap and more support needed. And so our large organizations are responding. And then a lot of local organizations, BIPOC urban agriculture sites and other BIPOC community organizations are really trying to fill that gap. Uh, They have close relationships with communities. We have a lot of urban growers and they're responding with food distribution. And so in Chicago, unlike some other cities, we have a great network of organizations that are responding to this need. You've probably heard a lot about many of the food distribution sites that are happening and popping up, pop-up pantries. But in spite of that, unfortunately, we have this growing need and we need more investment. So I think it's important for us to think about the next COVID, although this COVID is not over. It's important for us to think, how can we invest in those communities to make sure that they are stable? But with COVID, if you look at someplace like downtown or Lincoln Park, that has a lot of food retail when people are at home, it's a lot easier for them to get to that food retail. When you live in a community where you don't have that food retail, you can't walk out of your door and just go to multiple options. You know, I live between Chatham and Roseland. Okay. And I often ask myself, why doesn't Rosen or Chatham, I go to Lincoln Park often, I work at UIC. So I'm in a lot of neighborhoods across the city. And I, I ask myself, why do these neighborhoods look different? And what can we do? They don't need to look exactly the same because mm-hmm. we have to pay attention to cultural needs and types of business owners because we wanna make sure local people own businesses and communities. But we should have the same types of resources. And the history of racial segregation and racism in Chicago is a major factor in that inequity. At the root, we need to address that structural racism that created the problem. Yeah. And really think about why do we have these differences between communities in Chicago, and why is Chicago, even uniquely as compared to some other cities, so racially segregated when it comes to not only socially segregated, but segregated when it comes to resources, segregated when it comes to media, segregated. It's almost like you name it, we can point to that inequity that exists by geography and by race in Chicago.
1: We do appreciate your insight. Angela Odoms Young is an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Nutrition at the University of Illinois Chicago's College of Applied Health Sciences. Thanks so much for joining us, Angela. that's today's Reset and the final part of our series, Closing the Gap, Food Insecurity. If you missed parts one, two or three, you can go back and listen to those episodes in your feed. And tomorrow on the show, it's our last podcast of the year. And what a year it's been, especially for politics in Chicago and Illinois. We'll look back at the biggest political stories of 2020, from our elected leaders' responses to a global pandemic, to the president commuting the sentence of a rather infamous former Illinois governor. And we may make a few predictions for 2021. Check back in for that conversation. You don't want to miss it. But that's it for today. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening, and we'll meet again tomorrow.
2: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's through line wherever you get your podcasts.